Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. So this is Romans 8, the first four chapters, or first four verses. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses could not save us because of our sinful nature, but God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent his own son in a human body like ours, except that ours are sinful. God destroyed sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the requirement of the law would be fully accomplished for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. This is the word of God. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. We, um, I, uh, we had a team go to Nicaragua a couple weeks ago, and uh, that was amazing. I think next weekend or the weekend after, we'll have some folks up here and um, talk to you a little bit about that. But um, it was a great trip. Thanks for your prayers on that. And I think the, the students that went along particularly, you know, it was an impactful experience for them. We're, um, we're in the series in the book of Romans. Uh, we've been here for a while and, um, and have a while to go. And we get to chapter 8, um, which one pastor said is like the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I wouldn't dispute that. And this verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like Romans has a bunch of verses that you would put on a plaque and put in your house. You know what I mean? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and this is one of those. And if you had like a top 10 Bible verses, this should probably be in your top 10 favorite Bible verses. I don't know if that's a good idea because all the Bible verses should be your favorite Bible verses, but like this should be, um, this should be towards the top. And Paul has just gotten done with a section where he's dealing with the law and, um, and our relationship with the law, and he's about to go into... To this point in the, in, the, in the book of Letter to the Romans, he's only mentioned the Holy Spirit twice. In Romans 8, he's going to mention it 20 times. This is a real transitional verse or passage in it. Uh, but there's such a depth to this idea. There is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I started thinking the past couple weeks when I was looking at this verse about um, that it's a bit like going to the dentist. Uh, I don't, I don't know if Matt's still in here. I don't like going to the dentist. Yeah, and um, I don't like going to the dentist primarily because they've got tools that look so archaic, you know? Like, they've been around since the Middle Ages and were used in the Inquisition or something like that. Like, they look so primitive. Um, and the only thing they've added in the last several hundred years is the drill. And that's the worst one of them because it's like they pitch that thing to scare you, you know, like the, the high-pitched whine of that drill, and then when it hits your teeth, um, it's horrible. But what they do with that is get all of the decay out of a tooth before they fill it back up. Um, and if they can't get it all out, you're in trouble, 
uh, but, but they do it, and it's disconcerting, if not a bit painful, depending on how they do with the stuff, you know. Uh, and that feels like what Paul's doing with this last little bit. There is therefore now none, not even just a little, no condemnation. And then he's going to fill us up with what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And condemnation is a strong word that I don't, I, I bet, I bet very few of you talked about anything being condemned this week. What do, when, when do we talk about things being condemned? What do we talk about being condemned? House. And a house is condemned when it's not fit for anybody to live in it, which is like a good picture of the strength of the word, condemnation. What else would we talk about being condemned? A bridge? Oh, yeah, that's good. You could condemn a bridge, I guess, like a house. You condemn somebody to death. Like, that's when we talk about it. Somebody gets a death sentence, they have been condemned to death. They're not fit to live anymore. And so condemnation has, like, such a strength to it. And last week, or two weeks ago now, the passage that John preached, where Paul ends up talking about his, the tension with the law and saying, wretched man that I am. Like, that's condemnation. That's a feeling of condemnation. Like, like I'm, there's something so wrong with me that I'm not fixable. And something explicitly or implicitly is just taking you down that notch. Like, I think we probably all feel a sense of, of condemnation um, and probably felt it this week. Uh, I did think we were on vacation this week. I don't know if a lot of people's vacation season. And it's hard to screw stuff up on vacation, so maybe you didn't feel condemnation on vacation. But then I thought a lot of times we're on vacation with family, like our closest family, and our closest family sees the decay in our lives like nobody else does. And so it doesn't take long to get in those relationships and to have unhealthy patterns like manifest themselves because we didn't know what, and you can feel condemned by your family like you can feel condemned by nobody else. And so maybe you did experience it. But let me just throw that out there, like, and I'll, I'll ask two questions. You can answer either one of them. I think you probably answer the second one. But what is condemnation, and how do you experience, like, some level of condemnation? And what are some ways that you feel like you're not enough? Like, that gets communicated to you in some way. Hmm. Yeah, performance review. Um, from someone who probably gives more performance reviews than most people do. Do you feel like you're the condemner? <laughs> I bet you do. I bet you do a great job at that. Yeah, performance review, for sure. What else? Yeah, yeah, an inner voice that says you're not good enough. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. That's a good one. When your spouse needs, says you need to talk. Um. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the sake of the podcast and the, and the live stream, when, when that's followed up with, and you need to listen. Let me throw out a few as I was thinking about this. Um, my son drives this car now, but for a few years I drove a Prius. Dude. People do not like Priuses. Like, we've had that car for maybe five, six years now. Longer. Probably six, seven years. It's never met a mechanic. It's never met my mechanic. Like, 
you know? I fixed a few things, but nothing like super significant on it. And I got to drive it back from the beach the other day because Michael and I um, came back from Maryland together. I got 45 miles to the gallon in the middle of the summer with the air conditioning blasting. Like, I'm so cheap that that is, that's like a great day for me. You know what I mean? But people, people just don't like that car. Um, I remember having a problem with it at the soccer fields, and this big dude, mechanic guy, comes up to me, and he knows all about them. And, uh, and he told me what I need, I need to replace the little battery in it. And, um, and I'm like, well, do you have one? He's like, oh, gosh, no, I don't have one. Like, <laughs> just like that. Um, so I could get that. We, we, uh, we recently graduated from our minivan to um, Bobby Joe. I mean, that car was done, and we needed a different car. And so we ended up getting a slightly used Highlander, which is a Toyota. It's going to run forever. We looked around at a lot of different cars, and I realized at some point, there was a used Tesla in town for about as much as we were paying for this Highlander. And, and Bobby Joe had mentioned wanting a hybrid to get good gas mileage. And I'm like, well, a Tesla, like, this is going to be really good gas mileage. She's like, ah, I don't know. And I'm like, come on, like, this would be fun. We could do this. And she's like, I just don't. And what it came out is Bobby Joe works as a, as a, uh, a nurse on an ambulance. And she works with some guys, a lot of guys that were ex-military or, like, firefighters and stuff like that. She said... We kind of ride around all day making fun of people that drive Teslas. And I'm like, oh, this is why you can't get a Tesla. They drive this ambulance. It is the biggest ambulance on the East Coast. It's the pediatric ambulance for Wake Med. This ambulance gets eight miles to the gallon and eats Teslas for lunch. Like, you could fit a Tesla in the back of this ambulance. But I realized, like, she couldn't, like, <laughs> there's some condemnation for people that drive Teslas on behalf of the people that, that she works with. All right, does that spur anything else? Like ways that you feel condemnation? And this is a little bit of a vulnerable question. None? An NC State fan in a Carolina world. Yeah, that's def there's definitely some ways that you could feel condemnation for whatever your team is, and particularly this team that I picked 25 years ago. Um, I'm going to give you one more. This is probably more than I want to say. Uh, there is, there is, um, being short is not an advantage in this world. And it's not a big deal. But I will tell you, like, there are, t and I don't think I have little man's complex. Like, I know guys that have little man's complex. You can tell me if you think that I do afterwards, not right now. Um, but, like, people sometimes will get on that. And for something that you have absolutely no control over, to feel like some level of someone taking you down or not because they're taller than you is supremely irritating. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize... I didn't really realize it until I came on staff, until I started going to Hope, the last church that we were at before we came here. And then it just became a topic. And I'm like, the church can be the worst sometimes at bringing out these little things that we condemn people for. My, my pastor's cohort, who I love, and we've been together for 10 years now, I talk about them a lot, and this is probably the one thing, the Prius, like, that's the group of people that cracked on me for that car the most. There's one guy in that that drives a Jeep. You get eight miles to the gallon if you drive a Jeep, and your car's in the shop every other week. You know what I mean? But, like, I'm getting cracked on for this. 
And, uh, and it, we can be the worst at it. There's a book I mention from time to time called Searching for God Knows What by Donald Miller. And he, in that, it, I mean, it's a lot about, about our, and I'm going to get into it a little bit later, just a tiny bit, but like our propensity to compare ourselves to each other. And he's talking to someone about how the church can be the worst of this. And so they walk into when they used to have Christian bookstores, walk into a Christian bookstore with a buddy of his. He said, we're going to go to the music section and, and see if we can find an ugly person on the album cover. Because there's no ugly Christian music artists. And he's right about it. And it's not true outside the church, but it is true inside the church. And so somehow we can be, we can be the worst at it. I, um, it's the, way, the way I would break down condemnation is, um, as I was thinking about this, was three ways. The first one is condemnation before God. And so I would call this primary condemnation. Um, and this is what Paul was been, has been talking about, particularly in the last chapter, that there, there is a standard, and God is the standard, and the law is like a reflection of that standard of God that we're supposed to be able to, and we were able to attain to at one point, but we can't attain to now. And so Paul getting to the end of chapter, saying, in chapter 7 and saying, the thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the thing that I don't want to do, I do, um, saying that I agree with the law of God in my mind, but in my members, I find myself doing something uh, other than that. That is condemnation. That is a primary condemnation, and, and in a sense, a rightful condemnation, that there's a standard that we were made for, but we can't attain to that standard um, and it's a problem. And so for you, there's, there, you know, there are probably a few sins that you struggle with, that you struggle with for a long time, that lead to a sense of condemnation. Or there's a temptation to condemnation in those things. And when you first come to faith in Christ, like there's stuff that has been obvious to you that you were convicted of that led you to Christ that has been obvious to the people around you and there are things that that are, you work on and they're actually not that hard to work on after you walk with Christ for a few years you start to realize that there are things about you that you just thought of as normal but they're but there's sinful patterns in your life that need work on and the people around you are like thankful that you finally come to that point but those things are harder to root out and they're going to take a lifetime to really root them out and then some you know and so those could be envy, or pride, or anger, or lust, or fear, like sins that we continue to struggle with. And it's easy to get to a point with those sins of wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this, and have a sense of condemnation um, before God. And we have a choice with that, and, and this passage is the way through it to like freedom, I think what we can tend to do, even in the church, is stuff it down and ignore it. Um, we, can, we, can, we can compensate for it. And like coming to church can be a way of compensating for it, but not really dealing with it, not talking about it. Um, I think over, over time, uh, the church is, I, I think we've had a good culture of not just stuffing stuff down. I feel like, particularly coming out of COVID, our, our group life, as a church, whether it's small groups or we, we used to have like groups of three, journey groups or core groups, hasn't been as strong. Those groups were groups that really rooted it out. Um, I met with, with two guys for probably seven or eight years. And the hard thing about that is bringing up the same sin over and over again because you're still struggling with the same sin. 
And grace is the only thing that's going to root that out. But what we can tend to do, because that can be a painful process, and this is the dentist chair, right, is to just stuff it down and ignore it and say we can't do anything about it and pretend it doesn't make a difference. But those are places where we experience um, condemnation, even in church. Outside of church, I think it manifests itself of people like having a sense that God exists and they're not who they're supposed to are, be, but, but a sense of I did my best. And so I did this, so this must be okay, but not really wanting to deal with the areas of condemnation. So just pretending that, that it's not that the law isn't there, but backing completely off of it and saying it must not make a difference because I can't do anything about it. And all of that, like the dentist chair is, a, is an uncomfortable place to be, if not painful. And so we can experience that primary condemnation um, before God when we really pay attention to who we're supposed to be and, and who we actually are. Um, I would say then there's condemnation before others, which is a separate type of condemnation, and I would call it like a secondary condemnation. And so this type of condemnation in the eyes of the people around us can be like, you don't have enough. Uh, you don't know enough. You haven't accomplished enough. You don't look a certain way, dress a certain way, whatever it is. You haven't met expectations, whether they be your bosses or your teachers or your parents or your spouses, or your kids, or your neighbors, or the crowds. Um, and that secondary condemnation is the result of a different type of law that you have not kept. But it's a law that's established by the communities that we, we live in. You know what I mean? And so we contrast and compare each other and self-justify with these laws. And your family has its own type of law that this is a possibility to have happen. It happens in churches. Um, you know, all the time, where we, we end up majoring on the things that we're good at and minoring on the things that we're not. It happens in workplaces. It happens in a, in a neighborhood, in a city, in a school. For sure, in a middle school or a high school, there are laws that you better abide by. And the better you are at abiding those, you're, like, the higher you're going to get up in that social stratosphere. And, and the less you abide by those things, the more condemnation you have the potential to feel. And that law always changes, and it's based on who has power and who has power can change fast. And when you haven't met that standard um, in the eyes of that jury, you have been condemned, and you feel, can feel like you're not enough. And so that would be a secondary condemnation. There's a third condemnation I would talk about, which I think it was Susan mentioned, like the condemnation of the mirror, which is probably an amalgamation of the first two, where just sometimes the easiest thing to do is continue to beat ourselves up. And you just feel like you're not enough. You're not enough. And so condemnation, while a strong word, I think we experience this all the time. Um, where does it come from? And it, and it comes from our inability to meet the standard and primary condemnation, the real standard that, that's just the standard of creation because we're made in the image of God and we're made to be a certain thing and because of sin we can't be that. And that's what the whole letter of Romans has been about. And when Paul says there is therefore... There is, therefore, because of the stuff he's been talking about, now, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of conditions on the no condemnation. I think the world would just have us believe there's no condemnation because there shouldn't be any condemnation, so let's just pretend that everything's okay and there's no condemnation. And that's not reality. Reality is there's a way that things are supposed to be, and this isn't it. Um, reality is there is a standard of good and evil, and we don't measure it up to, up to it because we have a sin problem that we can't fix. 
And implicit in the statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is the statement, there is condemnation still for those who are not in Christ Jesus. Like, we can have no condemnation, but we can have no condemnation because of what Christ has done for us. But because of what Christ has done for us, we can have zero condemnation. And we should have zero condemnation. And if we don't have zero condemnation, we are missing the point of the gospel and the freedom that it offers. Um, our condemnation doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It means that he created us in a certain way, and we're not that way, and it's a problem. And a problem that needs to be fixed, or it's going to lead to more than just a little bit of hell. And the problem leads to feelings of condemnation. And thank God that he allows us to have feelings of condemnation, or we wouldn't be inclined to do anything about it. And as I just said, we can keep it at arm's length and pretend it's not there, and that's what many people do. And God lets us. Like in Revelation, it says God stands at the door and knocks. And if we open the door, he'll come in. Um, but doesn't shove his way through that door. Uh, and so he lets us, and, and many people do. Um, as I was working through this, I thought the opposite of condemnation, what's the opposite of condemnation? Acceptance? Yeah. I put affirmation. The opposite of condemnation is affirmation work with that. Um, and so we stand before God condemned or affirmed. We can be loved but condemned. Um, I, can love, I can love my kids, love my wife, love the church, but not affirm everything that everybody's doing. Uh, but affirmation, I think, helps us understand condemnation because we're made for affirmation and we need it. We need affirmation. You know, we're like dogs. Dogs need affirmation. They're not proud. They're not, like, ashamed of it. They just need it. Cats can pretend like they don't need affirmation. You know what I mean? We're not cats. We're dogs. And so we need it. And 90-whatever uh, percent of us can't just gin up the affirmation that we need. The whole idea of self-esteem, people keep telling us we have to have good self-esteem because we can't find it in ourselves. And so 90% of whatever percent of us, like, we're just trying to find that affirmation there's some small percentage of people that aren't trying to find that affirmation, but they're probably narcissists, and that's not helpful either. You know, like we need it. And that's, that's the whole story of the Bible. It's right in the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve and says, you are very good. Affirmation. They knew that they were loved, and they knew that they were good. And the temptation of the devil is God doesn't really love you. He's just trying to control and manipulate you and loves himself and convince them to not be good and to fail to trust God and disobey him. And immediately they knew that they were bad, and that they knew that they deserved condemnation, which is why they hid from God. And we spend the rest of the Bible seeking to escape condemnation and return to affirmation. And so the, the whole idea of like a secondary condemnation comes from the need to use others to find affirmation that we know should come from God, but we can't because of, because of our sin. And so we, other people use us to justify themselves, and we use them to justify us. And so those immediate forms of secondary affirmation or like a, like a false affirmation spring up immediately in the garden. They hide from God but hide from each other. God comes in and says, hey, what happened? And Adam says, the woman you gave me, she did it. And so what he gets out of that is like, I may have a problem and deserve some condemnation, but not as much as she does. 
And so in that gap gets a little bit of affirmation, even in the midst of that, the condemnation that he feels from God. And those are the systems, that is the law of sin and death, that's what we keep doing over and over and over again. We create little communities that have insiders and outsiders, and if you're in, you get affirmation, but if you're out, you get condemnation. That is the law of the land, the law of the kingdoms of the world. It leads to the secondary condemnation that we feel from others, and the systems are, are, are nearly completely artificial. And so you could get that, you know, anywhere. You get that in your neighborhood, um, keeping up with the Joneses. You get into your gym. You could probably get condemnation and affirmation at your gym in the same day. You know what I mean? Um, part of the, like, CrossFit was still a thing, but, like, a huge thing when it came out. And there were articles about how it's church-like in the community that it creates. And the affirmation that you get from being in a part of that community, but certainly there's condemnation for people that, are a part of, that aren't a part of it. From your school, you can get it. Um, it is the base of racism. You get it from your skin color. You get it from your income level. You can get it from your profession. I don't know what your preferred forms of artificial affirmation are. I know we all have them. Your body, your money, your job, approval, and, uh, and all of those are going to mess us up. And when the passage says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero condemnation. It is offering us an out from, from all of it, from primary condemnation, from secondary condemnation, from all of it. Um, and all of them result from what Paul calls the law of, of sin and death. Let me say one more thing about this like before I just go through some of the verses, but there's a difference between condemnation and criticism. Um, and so criticism is like the result of evaluation, you know, and, uh, and just the idea that you can improve. Condemnation is the idea that you never will, like you'll never be good enough. You're not enough now, and you never will be. And we won't leave this passage today saying you're perfect just the way you are right now. You're, you're um, incapable of being criticized about anything. That's not true. He's making you perfect by the power of the law of the Spirit, of the Spirit's work in your life. He is sanctifying you and conforming you to the image of Christ. Um, but, but even with that room for criticism, you will not be condemned because your primary source of affirmation is no longer your performance. You will not be condemned because your primary source of affirmation is no longer your performance. Um, and once we convince ourselves that our performance is our primary source of affirmation, like, we like that because we're in control. It's the trade-off, and it's addictive to think, and there are realms of our life where you're doing so well and so becomes your source of affirmation, and it competes with the affirmation that only God can give you, but it comes with the risk of condemnation. If our primary source of affirmation is the performance of Christ on our behalf and what God says to us as a result of that, then he's in control, but we are completely free. Um, and surprisingly... The deeper you accept this truth that you're not condemned, the more able you are to receive criticism. The deeper you, you um, accept the truth that you're not condemned, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, the more you're able to receive criticism. Because criticism only threatens all your false affirmation. Your true affirmation doesn't depend on your performance, but Christ's performance. And so you don't need to worry about 
criticism of the false affirmations. There's nothing to criticize anymore. So going through this verse and digging out that cavity, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not condemning you. The, word, the condemnation from the world around you doesn't need to affect you anymore. Um, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Uh, all of our condemnation is the result of the law of sin and death. Uh, we failed to trust God, couldn't come back, and it led to condemnation, it led to death, and it led to the secondary systems of condemnation and affirmation. But we're not under that anymore. And so this law of the spirit of life, which is more of a, a principle of the work of the spirit that we're going to get into in the next few weeks, um, is now the thing that, that, that dictates us. Uh, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And this is the mechanics of the gospel. The law could not make us righteous. It could have been the path to righteousness because it was intended to show us the will of God. But it was weakened by our flesh that could not do it. And so the law was incapable of overcoming that. And that led to condemnation. And God showed us that reality for thousands of years. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Um, and Susan's, whatever translation she was reading, did a good job of that. <laughs> he came in the flesh, but not like our flesh, because he had no sin. It's the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, For our sake, God made Jesus, him, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the trade. He made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus knew no sin, so that in Christ we might actually become the righteousness of God. He dug out all the sin and decay in that cavity and filled it with the righteousness of the Holy Spirit in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And now by the power of the Spirit, we're able to keep that law. And, and that's where Paul goes in the next section of the letter. And so we don't have to experience condemnation anymore because Jesus experienced the fullness of the condemnation that we deserve on our behalf and gave us the righteousness of Christ. And in that is freedom. Um, part of the false affirmation of the world is denying that there was any need for condemnation. Christianity doesn't ignore it. It barrels right through it. Um, it deals with it. And because it deals with it, we don't have to ignore it either. And what comes on the other end of that is just a freedom from all of it. And so there's no primary condemnation anymore because uh, of what Christ has done for us. Um, but it's not just the absence of that condemnation. It's the presence of like a primary affirmation. Not a false affirmation, but a primary affirmation from God that we're made for. In Christ, God looks upon you and says, you are very good. Even though we haven't overcome all those things that we need to overcome, he looks at you in Christ and says, you are very good. Uh, Donald Miller book, Searching for God Knows What, um, the reason it's on my like top five, ten list of books is he, he gets into this, this stuff in Genesis and says we're wired to get our idea of who we are from outside of ourselves for God to say, you are very good. And when we don't get it from God, we'll get it from others and we'll become a hot mess because those systems of secondary affirmation change all the time. And so then he said, if Jesus was God 
And he had that perfect affirmation from God. He wouldn't need the secondary affirmations, and his life would be different from ours, and just goes through the Gospels and shows how that's true. And Jesus didn't have to compare himself to anybody. He was perfectly secure because he was always going away and, like, getting the affirmation from his Father. And that was enough for him, and it's enough for us. I'm reading a book right now called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and he goes down the same road. He talks about Jesus' baptism. And so when Jesus um, was baptized, this is the passage in Matthew 3, uh, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He hadn't done a thing yet. And the father loved him, and the father affirmed him, and said, you are very good. Uh, and he was very good, and so there was no reason for any type of condemnation. But that primary affirmation, the next thing that happens, he goes out in the desert and he gets tempted. And, um, and so the, this guy drew parallels to what we face all the time. The first temptation was turning rocks into bread. And he said, that's, I am what I do. And that's one of our temptations, I am what I do. But Jesus resisted that temptation. The second one was throw yourself down from the temple and see if the angels will save you, which this author turned into, I am what people think of me. And that is one of our temptations. And the third temptation was where Satan said, follow me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And so I am what I possess. And that's our temptation. And Jesus didn't give in to those temptations because he had this primary affirmation from the Father that said, you are very good and you don't need those other things. Uh, He goes on to say, Jesus then when you look at his life, he disappointed his family. He disappointed the people he grew up with in Nazareth. He disappointed his disciples, his closest friends. He disappointed the religious leaders and the powerful of his day. He disappointed the crowds, all to hold like faithful to the truth and was able to do something that we have so much time or trouble like when we don't have the approval of the people around us. But Jesus didn't because he, he had that perfect primary affirmation from the Father. And in that, that he's restored for us is is freedom. He's set us free from the law of sin and death. He's done what the law could not do. He's made you enough. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law is and is being fulfilled in us. My hope for this is that you feel freedom in it. Um, I started to think about how you might test that and one of the tests is probably like the level to which criticism affects you from the people around you uh can you accept criticism without it being the end of you criticism i think always hurts you know but but for some people and at some times and from some people it crushes us and it doesn't need to because in christ at the center it's not our performance it's christ's performance I also thought, how much weight do you put on those secondary sources of affirmation? Um, Because they're gifts from God that God will use probably to give his primary affirmation, but they can be things that crush us if we put too much weight on them and make them ultimate things in our lives. And living out of this verse, like out of this primary affirmation, there is therefore now no condemnation will change how you treat any of these sources of secondary affirmation. I thought about um, our relationship with our parents. And parents have a unique voice um, into the lives of, of their children, you know, but parents are always going to screw it up. And some parents are just bad parents. They're absent parents. They're neglectful parents, and so they're bad parents. Um, but the best parents won't be enough. 
because we can't be, and we're not made to be. Uh, and so if we as kids put too much weight on what our parents say, then we'll feel a false condemnation because we're expecting an affirmation they can't give, and we'll falsely condemn them for not being something that they couldn't be. And we don't have to do that anymore. Um, I thought about marriage. Double all of that for a spouse, you know? Uh, you get married, and you, you found somebody that you thought was perfect, but half the reason you thought they were perfect is because they thought you were perfect. Like, you had finally found someone that agrees with you on the fact that you're perfect. And then it turns out that neither they nor you are perfect. And the longer you go, the more your faults are exposed, and you realize that marriage is a tool that God's going to use to sanctify both of you. And that's not a fun process. Um, I found this quote from, from a, I think he was at Duke. He, he says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are the primary are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, give it a while, and he or she will change, for marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we're not the same person after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. But if we think that that person that we find ourselves married to is our primary source of affirmation, look out for everybody involved in that situation. Um, a pastor named John Piper took this further. He says, suppose you feel disappointed or even deeply wronged in your marriage. Where will you find the moral power to forgive and keep on loving and wooing and hoping, and not resort to returning evil for evil and condemning. He says, the answer is this verse, Romans 8, 1. You will remind yourself again and again that even though you are a sinner, in Christ Jesus does not condemn you. Or in Christ Jesus, God does not condemn you. And your future is free for everlasting joy. From that reservoir of mercy and hope, you will draw buckets of mercy for your spouse. And God will work wonders of grace in your life. And I think that's 100% true. But if we're depending, living on like the scraps of secondary affirmation that will always change and never work, and not the primary affirmation that comes from God through what Christ has done for us, then we don't have that for the people around us. I thought about our kids. Kids provide so much affirmation, like so much frustration when they're little, but so much affirmation because they treat us like gods, because we are like gods to our kids. Like they need us for everything, you know? But then at some point, you know, it changes, and we can crush our kids thinking that their performance is a reflection on our worth as parents. Um, and Piper talks about this. He says, what are, you doing, what, are you go, what are you going to do if your children break your heart? We will find ample reason for thinking it was our fault, and you will never be able to sort that out ever. Only God can. So how will you keep going? How will you keep loving? He says, the answer is this verse. In the end, you don't have to sort that out. Your standing with God doesn't hang on you figuring out how much was yours and how much was not. Your standing before God as a loved and forgiven child is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And with that freedom, you'll admit your failings freely and humble yourselves before your children, and God may heal. He says we could go on and on. No condemnation in ministry. No condemnation in peer pressure. No condemnation in sexual temptation. No condemnation in pride. No condemnation and racism. Oh, how little does racial bigotry and prejudice and discrimination know of this truth. 
and on and on. The practical implications of this glorious truth are endless. Man, your work, your work can be source of primary affirmation for you and it will fail you and you will fail it. Um, but if it is just the gift that God has given us and the way that he's made us, then we can feel the joy that God felt when he looked upon what he created and saw that it was good, but it doesn't need to define us. That only happens if we have our primary affirmation in what Christ has done for us. Um, I'm going to, just a, just a minute or two to close this up, and I'm going to ask Kelly to come back up here, and I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. And as I, as I started through this passage, like, weeks ago, I planned on taking 1 through 13, but I just decided to take 1 through 4 because there's so much power in, in the, the truth that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation for us. And I am begging the Holy Spirit to dig that out in your soul and in mine. The areas where we've just gotten used to it and ignored it and pushed it down and we feel condemned and we've settled into it and we don't even realize it, but he wants to get it out and he wants you to walk out of here and to dwell on this week that there is no condemnation. He does not condemn you in one bit. You are enough because of what Christ Jesus has done for you. And so no matter what the mirror says or your parents say, or your kids say, or your spouse says, or your neighbors say, or your coworkers say, or a culture of cum accumulation or image cultivation says, uh, you are not condemned. You're not condemned because of that sin or those sins that you just can't overcome. He is going to finish what he started in you. And so re receive his forgiveness in this moment and keep moving without the weight of condemnation holding you down and keeping you in one place. You're not condemned because you screwed something up at work or at school. You're not condemned because you're not the perfect spouse. You're not condemned because your career didn't go the way you thought it would. You're not condemned because you have a kid who's struggling or because you don't have a kid or you don't have a spouse. You're not condemned. You're not condemned because your grades aren't great or you didn't get the part in the play or you didn't make the team you wanted or your friends turned their back on you. You are not condemned. And in Christ, God looks at us and says, you are very good because I've made you that way and I have redeemed you to be that way again. And so I think he looks at us and says, this is my child, Kevin, in whom I am well pleased. Or my child, Megan, in whom I am well pleased. Or put your name in there. This is my child, Jeff, in whom I am well pleased. Man, and feel that in your soul. That's what we're meant to live out of every single day. When he goes on in the next passages and says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit instead of setting your mind on the things of the flesh. He's saying, live out of this. You have the chance to live out of this. You have a decision day by day 
hour by hour, minute by minute, to live out of this or not. And I think of too much of the time, we're not living out of that. We're living out of something different. And so we're going to take communion in a minute, and communion is a visceral reminder of this truth that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And he wants us to know it, and he wants us to remember it, and he wants us to rejoice in it, and he wants us to celebrate it. Um, and to live out of that reality. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for all that has built up to these words. Thank you for what you have done on our behalf, Lord. I pray that you would bring to mind things that we've just gotten used to, but they're really forms of condemnation that we've settled into that you don't want us to. And this is the way forward in our sanctification, God. Is not to wallow in those things, but to face them, to bring them before you, to hear these words of yours in that part of our souls, Lord, that there is therefore now, because of what Christ has done, there is no condemnation for those who have received what Christ has done for us. And God, I pray that if... Um, if there is someone who hasn't received what Christ has done for them, that this would be uh, the day and the moment when they surrender themselves to you and the love that you have for them and the work that you have done on their behalf. Father, we're grateful for these things and pray this in Jesus' name.